0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young.
1: Welcome to Earth Eats. I mean, science is trial and error. And, you know, the scientists and engineers will tell you, you know, the failures are just as important as the successes because it tells, you know, now you know what not to do.
0: On this week's show, we dive into the food science archives at North Carolina State and uncover some strange experiments. Atomic peanuts, anyone? Jackie B. Howard shares a recipe for a colorful rice bowl featuring meatballs and Moroccan flavors. And Harvest Public Media reports on emergency managers testing plans on what to do if the African swine fever were to hit the U.S. pork industry. That's all coming up in the next half hour on Earth Eats, so stay with us. African swine fever has been infecting its way through the pig herds of Asia. Harvest Public Media's Amy Mayer reports that while the disease isn't here, the U.S. pork industry is preparing for a possible crisis.
2: African swine fever infected China in August 2018, and since then it's devastated the world's largest pig herd. And that's got pork producers here worried. So, in September, 14 U.S. states and the federal government held a four-day simulation exercise to test their preparedness.
3: You're in charge. What do you want? You
1: ready? Yeah. OK. <laughs> All right. Well. On day two
2: of the simulation, Iowa Secretary of Agriculture Mike Neg took a break from the role-playing at the State Emergency Operations Center near Des Moines to talk to reporters about how it was going. He said the simulation poked some holes in the plans, which is exactly the point. And he said as the nation's number one pork-producing state, Iowa has a critical role.
3: If we're a leader in production, we ought to be a leader in how we respond.
2: The exercise tested how states would get the first samples to the U.S. Department of Agriculture lab on the East Coast and how to stop trucks moving pigs, feed, and manure. Amanda Lutjens joined the exercise from Christensen Farms, where she's the animal welfare auditor. The network of hog farms includes sites in Minnesota, Nebraska, Illinois, and Iowa. We are spending a lot of time and energy working um, on these plans that all of us hope we never have to use. She says they keep track of every person, pig, and truck that comes and goes from each of the 400 Christensen-affiliated farms. But there's no way to know whether the preparations they're making will ultimately prove useful if the virus gets here. We also understand this is a new and evolving beast, so um, it's going to be changing. To be clear, African swine fever is nowhere in the Western Hemisphere. But it could arrive on any plane from an infected country.
4: won't come across our land borders unless it first gets into a different country.
2: That's Iowa State University veterinary medicine professor Jim Roth.
4: The major concern is uh, people and products from positive countries, and there are more and more positive countries all the time.
2: Roth participated in the simulation from USDA's incident headquarters in Maryland. He says Asia has provided a sobering reality check. From China, the virus has spread to North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, Myanmar, and the Philippines.
4: We've learned a lot from what they've done in those other countries. Um, But when... (laughs) What we've learned is they haven't been able to stop it, so we need to really be prepared.
2: And even while the U.S. was running its hypotheticals in September, the disease spread to South Korea, a country considered almost as prepared as the United States. This newscast says that the disease has been confirmed and explains it's nearly 100% lethal to pigs and has prompted government officials to launch efforts to contain it. Two weeks after the simulation and the South Korean announcement, I caught up with Ross and his colleague, veterinary pathologist Kyun Jin Yoon. They pieced together what happened in South Korea and what it implies for the readiness of the United States. Farmers expect to see sick pigs at times. South Korean producers were coached to monitor for specific symptoms. Yoon says those didn't always show up. Immediately people recognize that the clinical signs that the textbook describes is not always there. So now, and for U.S. producers, Roth says, don't wait for additional signs if a pig has a fever or stops eating.
4: The message is call a veterinarian right away.
2: But Roth and Yoon agree that should the United States become positive for African swine fever, pork dumplings and bacon could become scarce worldwide.
4: The world is going to have to reckon with a shortage of pork and how How do we do that?
2: On the other hand, planners recognize that consumers here might lose interest in pork if there's a deadly pig disease. That would cause the opposite problem, a glut of cheap ham and sausage in the U.S. Precautions remain strong. Some swine shows and events have been modified or canceled. Oklahoma recently became the 23rd state to ban feeding cooked food waste to pigs. And the USDA has brigades of beagles sniffing for contraband salami at airports. Amy Mayer,
0: Harvest Public Media. Harvest Public Media reports on our food system from the heartland. Find more from this reporter collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Universities are synonymous with research, experimentation, tinkering, failures, and successes. At North Carolina State University, a hub of agriculture and food science research and product development, archivists collect and preserve some of the most interesting details in food history. Producer Josephine McRobbie brings us this story from the campus in Raleigh, North Carolina.
5: Right now, um, to the right, you can see we've got peanut plants, and from there we've got cotton, soybeans, wheat.
0: The brickyard at North
5: Carolina State University is a little different from your typical college quad. Though, to be fair, it is Agricultural Awareness Week. Savannah Starnes, a senior majoring in agricultural science, is walking me through the exhibits of baby chicks and crop samples as the trailers of cows, goats, and pigs leave for the day. But we do this every spring in hopes to kind of bring the barnyard to the brickyard and educate, you know, students that don't come from agricultural backgrounds about agriculture for them to, you know, find out where their food comes from, find out where their clothing comes from and things like that. So what does this university have to do with where our foods come from? And what hits and misses have happened along the way? NC State has a long and varied history of agricultural and food research, with programs in everything from poultry science to feed mill management to sustainable food systems. I'm here at NC State to meet with archivists Todd Kosmerich and Virginia Ferris. They've assembled two long tables full of archival goodies related to food and agricultural science.
1: We've got photographs, we've got press releases, we've got scrapbooks.
5: Are there any preserved foods in the archive?
1: (laughs) No. (laughs) That's a great question though.
5: The Special Collections Research Center works with units all over campus to identify and preserve historically valuable records and documents.
1: Agriculture is part of the reason why the university was established in 1887 to provide a place of higher education where North Carolina North North Carolinians could learn the latest kind of farming techniques that were being researched and developed.
5: The North Carolina Cooperative Extension Service was established in 1914, and around the same time, Jane McKimmon was hired to lead a statewide home demonstration program. These home demonstration projects aim to provide services to rural women and girls throughout the state.
6: This whole folder is material from
5: a handbook that, or a binder
6: of materials that a home demonstration agent would have used. Teaching them, especially things like canning, which was a new technology at the time, a very um, emerging technology that was mostly used by um, kind of companies that were producing food for a growing market. But this was putting that technology in the hands of young women in rural communities who were learning through Jane McKimmon's program, how to grow their own food, how to preserve that food, and then also how to market and sell that food for their own profit and for their families.
5: The goal of agriculture and extension at NC State was to use science to improve lives.
6: The university, the land grant, is here doing all of this research, creating new tools, creating new breeds of plants that then come back to each of the
5: counties in the state
6: through extension.
5: And in the process of developing new methods for creating and distributing foods, NC State researchers started to come up with some pretty unusual stuff. Dr. Maurice Hoover began at NC State in the 1950s, around the same time food science was becoming an established field of study. His ultimate goal was to create a food processing industry in North Carolina, and food dehydration was his process of choice. The archival record describes his experimentations with vegan-friendly-sounding treats, peanut cheese, sweet potato chips, fruit pellets, and something called a soy antilog. You
1: know, that's a picture of him, and he's holding in one hand a jar of the pellets, and he's holding in another hand a jar of the full-size fruit. They're just like little round things They don't look like strawberry, and it's black and white photography, so it doesn't <laughs> have the, the color to it that we could tell you know that it would have come from a strawberry
5: I asked Todd about some of the less appetizing ideas
1: oh Dr. Hoover freeze-dried seafood (laughs) yeah do you know what seafood yes shrimp African lobster tails I did run across a clipping where it said if you've ever had a shrimp cocktail you probably had you know that the shrimp in that cocktail was probably freeze dried.
5: Another big figure was Dr. Walton Gregory, a crop scientist who created something called the atomic peanut.
1: So um, he wanted to just um, induce genetic variation to see what kinds of things would come out of that that might be useful. Um, And so he exposed some peanut seed (laughs) to X-rays, which, messed up the genetics <laughs> of it. and then planted those seed peanuts to see what happened. It sounds like in most of the cases it created some weird looking plants that didn't really survive very well.
4: They were damaged cytologically and physiologically and they had some very bizarre and distorted forms of uh, plant life and.
5: But it did yield some viable crops, and Lady Bird Johnson is said to have tried an atomic peanut when she visited NC State in 1963. Dr. Gregory was, shockingly, part of a larger trend of experimenting with this kind of technology in the 1950s and 60s. There was even a national group called the Atomic Gardening Society. Eventually, Dr. Gregory came to realize that the publicity the product brought in was more substantial than its usefulness, and he and others moved on to other methods of plant breeding.
1: I mean, science is trial and error and, you know, the scientists and engineers will tell you, you know, the failures are just as important as the successes because it tell you know, now you know what not to do.
5: And through these unusual experimentations, we see a through-thread of pretty grounded work.
1: So looking back at mid-20th century, you know, can be um, amusing or sometimes frightening <laughs> about what people came up with. Um, but. You know, at the time, they thought they were improving people's lives.
0: Thanks to producer Josephine McRobbie for that story. Check out our website for links and a photo of the atomic peanut from the North Carolina State University's Food Science Archive. You can find that at eartheats.org. And I hope you'll join us on Twitter, where we share all sorts of stories and conversations about food history, food policy, food justice... Farm workers, and yes, even recipes. Find us on Twitter at EarthEats. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio. Architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rash Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the Expected. More at 812-336-6838. Jackie B. Howard is with us today, and as she's known to do, Jackie is meal prepping. In other words, she's preparing meals ahead of time for the week ahead or for the freezer. Today, Jackie's putting together a cauliflower rice bowl, where you substitute cauliflower for rice, featuring gingered turkey meatballs, a bright orange harissa-inspired sauce, crispy oven-roasted chickpeas, and more. Jackie is going all out for this bowl but she reminds us that bowls don't have to be complicated. It has a lot of different
3: components to it. I'm gonna talk you through all of them. You don't have to use all of them. The best thing about a bowl is you can make it whatever you want it to be and use the things that you have. I'm going to, but I am gonna start with the ground turkey meatballs. I've got two pounds of ground turkey. I'm working with two pounds because I'm going to freeze some of these meatballs. I'm using use them for other things. They're going to be ginger. It'll be ginger and garlic and salt and pepper, and that'll be the base. So then it can take any sort of sauce sort of in those similar flavor profiles. It gives you a lot of versatility, but still gives them a good amount of flavor. So I've got the two pounds of turkey, one egg, and then I'm going to do about a quarter of a cup Of Almond flour. I'm gonna add two tablespoons of ginger puree and a tablespoon of garlic puree. So I'm mixing these together I'm gonna add two teaspoons of salt and a teaspoon of pepper. Now. This is not something that we're gonna taste as we go (laughs) (laughs) So this we're gonna do on smell it smells the ginger is really coming up out of it So I feel confident about that um, and the other thing that's gonna be fine about these meatballs, as long as they are seasoned well enough with the salt and the ginger, they're gonna get extra, they're getting sauce and other things added to them. It's gonna get extra flavor to it. It doesn't need to be all the way in. And then there are a few ways that you can cook these. You could pan, pan fry them. I'm gonna bake them. I'm gonna cover these in sauce. If I weren't gonna cover them in sauce, I would wanna pan fry them so I can get that nice brown, you know, beautiful caramelized look to it. Since I'm gonna put these in sauce, I'm not as worried about getting that look from it. And if I bake them, then I can have my pan free for sautéing the cauliflower rice. They're much uh, more efficient in your time, especially when you know it's two pounds of turkey. It's a lot of meatballs. Trying to do, trying to pan fry those, I'd be here all day trying to do that. So I'm going to take them, and I'm uh, got a sheet pan covered in foil. I'm rolling these into about a one inch to a one and a half inch ball. My oven is at 400 degrees. I've got them all lined up on the pan. Throwing this in the oven, they'll take about 20 minutes. The turkey is is gonna cook faster than beef would, so keep that in mind, it's a leaner meat, so it's gonna cook up faster. I will check them around 15 minutes and then see if they actually take up to that 20. So then while those are in the oven, we're gonna go ahead and saute the cauliflower rice. For that, I am doing a tablespoon of coconut oil. You can hear that pan is hot and ready. So you can make cauliflower rice it's really easy to do you just take that cauliflower and put it into your food processor and break it up and you know dice it up into little tiny pieces or you can get it prepared at the store you can get it fresh prepared in the produce section or frozen as well this cauliflower rice is actually a mix of cauliflower carrot and broccoli i like the mix sometimes for you know to add some extra color and fun i'm just sauteing this straight as it is right now four cups of cauliflower rice and then i'm going to add salt about a teaspoon maybe a teaspoon and a half a teaspoon of pepper a tablespoon of turmeric i'm keeping it moving in the pan um, this is something i really i don't want to just set and forget um, because i don't want i want the consistency of the cauliflower rice i want it to cook pretty evenly i'm trying to mimic the rice and how that might feel I'm going to slightly undercook it because as it sits here, it's going to continue to cook a little bit. So I'm just doing this. It was what, maybe three or four minutes and I'm pulling it off and I'm going to let it sit off here. the heat. and I'm going to add a pomegranate. So I've gotten, I got a pomegranate and I've had it soaking in some water. I cut it into quarters, have it soaking in some water so that it'll help loosen up the seeds out of it. And then I'm just going to toss the seeds right into this. I'm making some crunchy chickpeas to go on top of my bowl. So I've taken a, a can of chickpeas, put it onto a foil lined sheet pan. I wanna dry them out at a lower temperature and let them sit for a while on their own. Then I'm gonna add the oil and seasoning and I want that to bake onto the outside. I'm gonna do it at a slightly higher temperature. I'm gonna move that up to, so it was at 375 for the half hour. Now I'm gonna move it up to 400 and just do it for 10 minutes. It's gonna finish that, make it crunchy and get that um, seasoning set on the outside. They're so versatile, and they're ni- they're a nice, fun snack. Like, these are this is something you could bake and have around. So I'm gonna put them in the oven, a half a teaspoon of oil, and honestly, just some shakes of the seasoning across the top of them, toss them in it. Um, I'm gonna guess it's probably half a teaspoon of that. they so are going back in the oven, and... Just for 10 minutes at 400? Yes. And I'm actually gonna set a timer because I really do not want to overbake them. Meatballs are out of the oven, chickpeas are in the oven. I'm gonna make the orange harissa sauce and then a, a spinach tabouli as well. So I'm gonna make the orange harissa sauce. Um, harissa would typically be with a, you would use a red pepper. Re- re- reconstitute a chili pepper of some sort. A chili or bowl, perhaps. I would use some chipotle. I don't have either of those today. <laughs> So I'm going to do the jalapeno and some tomato paste. So I should note that when I say this is a harissa sauce, it's a harissa inspired sauce. Like most things that I do, I take what's traditionally, you know, those sort of components and I make them fit what I like and what I want. So I'm looking at harissa as a red pepper sauce. Um, This is my take on that sauce. Traditionally, you might find caraway in it. I don't do the caraway because I like the orange and the mint, but this is how I cook using what I have and using the flavors I like. And putting it together in the way that I want to eat it. So I've got the 12 ounces of roasted red pepper, doing a whole jalapeno. I'm going to do four cloves of garlic, about a teaspoon and a half of cumin, teaspoon of smoked paprika, teaspoon and a half of salt, the juice of an orange, doing the half can of tomato paste. We're going to start with four mint leaves, fresh mint leaves. That's not typical for harissa sauce. The uh, the orange and mint are not typical. That's my fun spin on it. So I'm gonna puree this. So I'm tasting my sauce. The roasted red pepper is nice. I'd like a little more mint out of it. As it sits more of that mint is going to come out of it, so I want to be careful that I don't add too much. It could use a little bit of salt and a little more acidity. So I'm going to add just a touch of red wine vinegar to it. So I'm going to add so I'm going to add acid to it first because I know that it needs the acid and I may find that I don't need salt. If I add the acid, that might be enough. And then if I find that that's not quite enough, then I'll add more salt. It's about a half a uh, probably a quarter of a teaspoon of red wine vinegar to start. I don't want the uh, red wine vinegar flavor to take over, so I want to make sure I'm mindful of how much I'm putting in. I just want the acidity of it. Lemon juice would be another option that you could do if you didn't have red wine vinegar. I like the red wine vinegar with the roasted red pepper, so that's why I'm going that route. But you certainly could do lemon in- instead.
0: If you've heard Jackie be on our show before, you know she likes to taste as she goes, and she makes many adjustments. This time was no different. She added more orange juice, she added more salt, she tasted and she tweaked.
3: So I've got my sauce at a place where I want it to sit I'm gonna put it in the fridge while I make all my other components, and then before I actually serve it, I'm gonna test it again and see if there's anything it might need. If it might need a little bit more of that red wine vinegar, see how the mint comes out of it. It's gonna be really bright, and we have to remember that this is going on to those ginger turkey meatballs, and that ginger is gonna be really like, it's gonna have a kick to it. So it's really meant to complement, and that ginger is gonna be really great with this. The last component that I'm going to make for my bowl is a like a, a play on a spinach tabbouleh, not a not I'm not going to add grain to it. It's going to be more like a spinach salad. So I'm going to take fresh spinach, chop it up into sort of an herb. If you imagine like the size of a flat leaf parsley unchopped, right? So I'm going to that's what I'm uh, chopping my spinach into and then I'm going to toss that with some salt and pepper, lemon juice, a little bit of garlic and fresh cherry tomatoes that I've cut in half. Those are all gonna be put uh, mixed up together and then go as a component to my bowl. The last two components to that are some roasted red onions and pickled carrots. I'm not making the pickled carrots. We certainly could, because I love pickled carrots. We can do that sometime. Today, I'm using um, Indiana Pickle Company's Upland dragonfly pickled carrots. They are fantastic. They are so good. They're, I always have them in my fridge for, they're a great bowl component across the board. Um, if I do a Mediterranean bowl, this is a Moroccan bowl. If I do a, a taco bowl, across the board those those pickled carrots are my go-to if I'm not pickling my own. A Moroccan cauliflower rice bowl is assembled. It's beautiful. It looks great. The turmeric and the pomegranate and the cauliflower rice are a great juxtaposition of color on top of that The ground turkey uh, ginger meatballs with the orange harissa, also bright and colorful. The spinach and tomato salad adding some freshness to it. Roasted red onions, the pickled carrots to really sort of pop on top of that bowl, and then the crunchy chickpeas to add some texture. We might dollop this off with a little bit of yogurt if we wanted to, add some mint to that if we want to get really crazy. Again. All of these components are fun. If you want to just like play with some things, these are things that I mostly have around to be using. And so I'm going to throw them together and put them in, together in this way. I also can break all this out and do something else with it. That spinach salad can be you know, added to some other uh, salad. The chickpeas on their own can be a snack. Those meatballs are going to be a few other dishes in the future.
0: Thank you, Jackie. This is wonderful. Thank you, Kate. Appreciate having you in my kitchen. We've got a photo of Jackie's bright, colorful, Moroccan-inspired cauliflower rice bowl with turkey meatballs on our website. And as always, we have the recipe. You can search our recipe archive for old favorites and new inspirations at eartheats.org. Now you might have noticed that Jackie's bowl had a lot of components. In part, that's because Jackie is meal prepping She's making several sauces, several dishes featuring meatballs. She's probably got another place for those crispy chickpeas and the spinach salad. Also, because she might be enjoying similar meals throughout the week, she wants to build in opportunities to mix things up so she doesn't get bored with a single dish made the same way every time. But as Jackie noted, the beauty of a bowl is that you can make it your way. In fact, you could make this a vegetarian bowl or a vegan bowl. You could use rice or another grain instead of cauliflower. You could use tofu, falafel, or veggie meatballs. You can even adjust Jackie's harissa sauce and experiment with different toppings. You can make your dream bowl as simple or as elaborate as you wish. Jackie B. Howard tends to lean towards the elaborate. And can you blame her? That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning into Earth Eats.
2: The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive
1: producer is John Bailey.
0: Special thanks this week to Todd Kosmerick, Virginia Ferris, and everyone at the NC State Archives, and to Jackie B. Howard. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the Expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, Enrolled Agent with Personal Financial Services, Assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, Architectural Design and Consulting for Residential Commercial and Community Projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio